Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. We hope that these resources aid your worship of God and help you experience gospel change for all of life. For more information on our church or to plan a visit, please check us out online at SovereignHope.Church. That's SovereignHope.Church. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. Um, We know we live life in a time where we can often misunderstand um, and be frustrated with how things seem to be going. But we know that there is great freedom that comes when we realize that the source of influence and of power and of providence in our life is not our own ability or in the circumstances, but in you who are Lord over all and who has sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be not only a glimpse of what the kingdom of is like, but an assurance of it that all who come to faith in Jesus Christ have encountered what Paul says in Romans is the power of God. We pray that we would respond well today and the rest of this week as witnesses to what we've received from you. We pray all this in your name. Amen. So if you're a parent or if you've ever cared for small children, uh, you're perhaps familiar with such existential literature as one that begins this way. Kids, I wonder if you know this one. Deep in the water where the fish hang out, lives a glum, gloomy swimmer with an ever-present doubt. I'm a pout-pout fish with a pout-pout face, and I spread the dreary wearies all over the place. Blub, blub, blub. Along comes a clam with a wide winning grin and a pearl of advice for her pal to take in. Hey, Mr. Fish, with your crosstown frown, don't you think it's time to turn it upside down? says the fish to his friend. Nice thought, Mr. Clam. I hear what, you say, what you're saying, but it's just the way I am. I'm a pout-pout fish with a pout-pout face, and I spread the dreary wearies all over the place. Blub, blub, blub. Maybe you heard our own pout-pout fish in the text that was just read for us today, where after an amazing miracle, he responds, there are six days of the week in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, but not on the Sabbath day. Blub, blub, blub. And over the next few chapters of Luke's gospel, as we're working through it, we're going to encounter a lot of pout-pout fishes. A couple weeks ago, he warned Israel, who in the Old Testament was called the vineyard of God, saying that if the vine of God continues to be fruitless and to bear no fruit, that judgment will come. They'll be torn up and burned. But for the time being... Before judgment comes, Jesus is this vine dresser who is laboring in the vineyard trying to stimulate fruit. And what does that fruit look like? It looks like faith and belief in Jesus as God's Messiah. But what we're going to see in these next few weeks is we're going to see some shoots of fruit from people who we wouldn't expect it. And we're going to see continued barrenness from those who we would think would be the most fruitful. And you see what we're going to see today is it's not just the self-righteous or the Pharisees or the hypocrites who are the pout-pout fishes who need to hear from Jesus. But if we are not careful, you and me, we all might drift into a similar condition. And Jesus has been talking to us about the difficulty of what it means to be a follower of him, to have faith in him. 
And this time we live in between Jesus' first and his second coming presents a unique challenge because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the good news that Jesus has done everything required to save sinners and restore us to God, we have the certainty of God's promise, the certainty of salvation according to the work of Christ and not our own work. And yet, Jesus taught us to pray earlier in the book of Luke saying, your kingdom, that is God's kingdom, come. Meaning... This world and our lives is not the perfect kingdom we were made for. We will encounter trials and difficulties. So far in Luke, we've seen there's trials from the devil, there's trials from the world, and there's trials in our own flesh. And if we aren't careful, we too can become dangerously discontent. We'll wish things were different. We'll wonder and perhaps cry aloud, does God even care? We will think, after looking out at the world and seeing everything going on, that if we were in charge, we would do it differently. We would have a different take. We would lead into a different experience. Things would be going smoother. And there's, wonderful, there's a wonderful place for lament and sorrow in the Christian faith. And that's because the reason why this world is hard is because sin is real. We have a real problem. Jesus, Jesus didn't come and die on a whim because he felt like it. He came because this world is a dangerous place. And so when we lament, we lament over all of the brokenness that makes the gospel so beautiful. But for believers who understand the true reality of Jesus and his kingdom, our lament is also accompanied by an assured promise of glory. In other words, this is what we're going to look at today in our text, that in our world, the kingdom of the gospel is opposed, but overcoming. In that time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, the kingdom of the gospel is opposed but overcoming. And we're going to see this in two parts this morning. First, we're going to see Jesus' mercy opposed as he heals a woman on the Sabbath in a synagogue. But second, Jesus is going to use this healing as an opportunity to preach to us and to all who have eyes to see the overcoming force of kingdom power. If you've ever wrestled with doubts, discontent, or despair in following Jesus, what we'll see in our passage today is that if we hope in Jesus, hope always wins. Not because there's a vague power in hope, but because there is kingdom power in Jesus, who is the king of the kingdom, God in the flesh. And begin, let's dive into our first part today where we see Jesus' mercy exposed in the synagogue healing. For a number of weeks now, Jesus has been leaning more and more into the Jewish religion, uh, to their organized system of uh, their, their, their big, big religion, big R. He's leaning into it so that their unbelieving hearts might be made stunningly visible. Jesus pressing into this place where they ought to be the first ones to see Jesus as the Messiah, but they're failing to see it. He wants us to see how bare the vineyard is in Israel. And Jesus is teaching here in a synagogue on the Sabbath, the holy day of the week, is part of that expose. He's showing how the places which should praise him are empty of praise. And as Jesus is teaching the Old Testament, which is what he was doing in the synagogue, two things happen at the power of Jesus. We see both a healing and we see a hardening. We're going to touch on those briefly here. And Jesus' healing happens as he's teaching. He's teaching and he stops in order to heal. 
if you've been paying attention in the book of Luke, this is unique. Because typically what's happened is Jesus has been teaching or traveling and, and someone runs up to Jesus asking to be healed or friends dig through your roof and bring somebody to Jesus to be healed. But here Jesus interrupts himself to heal this woman. This in itself is really profound. We saw earlier on in the book of Luke where Jesus set aside his healing ministry. Do you remember what for though? In order to go preach the gospel. But now we see why Jesus prioritizes the preaching of the gospel. He's showing us the purpose of his preaching ministry. You see, the purpose or the end of Jesus's good news of salvation is not merely an intellectual understanding. But to understand who Jesus really is, the message of the gospel that he's preaching is to experience in a very real way healing. That's what the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of all who have faith in Jesus goes to prove that every Christian one day is healed both physically and spiritually. Believing what Jesus says drastically changes not everything on the outside, but everything about you. If you're just checking out Christianity and you've come here today, you might wonder why Christians do this. We submit ourselves to the study of Jesus' teaching, not because we need a new worldview or a new philosophy. We submit ourselves to Jesus' teaching because we know we need to be made new. We know the problem of sin in our own hearts. We know our own brokenness. And we know that in the gospel, we have freedom from sin now. And one day in heaven, we are completely restored and made new. If you're a Christian who loves to study theology, notice here that the end of Jesus' teaching is not big words, but big changes in your life. To miss the transformation that's held up in Christian doctrine is to miss the doctrine itself. Belief in what Jesus is teaching changes us. It transforms us. And did you notice Jesus' heart here? We see our Savior's heart displayed in verses 12 and 13. Notice it says, Jesus saw her. He called her over. He said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and she glorified God. And so I want to talk about the miracle here because it's miraculous, but I also want to talk about our savior here. Jesus saw her. Jesus called her over. He touched her and he healed her. Brothers and sisters, this is what it means to be saved by Jesus. No one accidentally backs into salvation. No one comes in through the back door. No one encounters it on a mere transactional level. Do you remember that? I believe there's one round of COVID checks that was, had to be brought back and reissued because the president wanted his signature on it. And why did he want his signature on it? Because he wanted every American who got that check to know that that relief came from the hand of the president. But when you got that check, you were under no illusion that the president personally sat down and said, gee, Tyler really needs this. I'm going to open up my checkbook and write him a check. It was the act of a larger legislation. His signature was stamped on it by a machine, processed in a facility, printed digitally, placed in the mail, carried by a postal worker, and dropped in your mailbox without even the slightest hello. That is not how Jesus saves people. That is not how Jesus gives us relief. It's not a transaction disassociated from the heart and the touch of our Savior. It is through Jesus' 
knowledge of us through his personal will. As Devin prayed earlier, Jesus set aside, Paul says, did not did not uh, hoard his divinity in heaven, but laid it aside to come to us. He, he involved himself to save us because he wanted to. He touches us gently to open our eyes to be saved by Jesus. Is no act of yourself that you can walk away from or lose as if you've misplaced your wallet. To be saved by Jesus is to be seen by him, to be called by him, to be spoken to by him, and to be touched by him through what? Through the message of the gospel. And as we see this woman, from everything we can gather, she believed in the message of the gospel that Jesus was preaching. She was in the synagogue and Jesus called her a daughter of Abraham. Which means, as we see developed by Paul later on, that she was probably one who who understood the role Jesus played in keeping the covenant to Abraham of the righteousness of God that depends not on the law, but on faith. By faith, Abraham believed God and it was counted to her as righteousness. We also see that as soon as she was healed by God, did you notice what she did? She glorified God. She saw Jesus's work as God's work. There was no division for her. What Jesus did, God did. But we also know that despite her belief, she suffered for 18 years with something that Dr. Luke called debilitating. Something physiologically in her body caused her spine to be twisted and perhaps folded over. And you can imagine, have any of you ever ridden on an airplane at all for any length of time and realized the miraculous power airplanes have to make it feel like you've just been in the worst car crash? Your whole body, like you sit like this for like, you know, an hour to fly to Portland. You get off and like a whole week is lost for your body to just get functioning again. For 18 years, this woman has been bent over. Imagine the pain that would have simply on your muscular system. The, the torture it would be to even just hold yourself upright And Luke tells us in verse 11, and Jesus himself tells us in verse 16, that part of this disease was the work of evil, demonic affliction. Now, this doesn't mean that everyone back, C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. We look at this and we just say, well, everyone was an idiot back then. They saw some sort of physical sickness, and because they weren't doctors, they just ascribe all of it to demonic influence. But that's not true. Remember, Luke, who is writing this, is himself a well-respected doctor. And he describes the affliction as both physical and spiritual. But this also does not mean that any physical illness is a sign of demonic spiritual possession. You see, contrary to other things we see in the book of Luke, we're not told this woman was possessed, merely that she was bound by Satan in this way. This is maybe similar to what, if you've read the book of Job, what Job experienced at the hand of the devil, but as God was fully aware of, and allowing. Or perhaps what Paul spoke of in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, when Paul says this, he said, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Paul experienced something similar to this, but he gave a purpose to it. It was so that it caused him not only to dwell, to rely on himself, to not become conceited. And this woman models what Paul is talking about in a profound way. Just think about this. What would you do if you were a Christian and you had a problem in your life 
that you suffered with for 18 years, that you prayed for, that your friends prayed for, for 18 years. What would you do if you did the good and faithful thing and you kept praying and you kept showing up to church and you kept hoping that your obedience would be rewarded, but every morning you woke up and you went to go stretch and your body just stopped? There's no stretching. There's no relief. The debilitation is seemingly endless. I imagine many of us, apart from God's grace, would throw our hands up and say, this isn't working. Blub, blub, blub. We'd become the pow-pow fish because it's hard. It's painful. It's, it's out of place. It's not a petty despair. It's a real despair. Someone listening here might have a physical ailment. It might be visible or it might be invisible. And you might say, this might be the passage that makes you just want to chuck your Bible across the room. This woman gets her healing. Where's mine? I'm here today. I'm listening today. I'm believing today. Isn't Jesus my savior too? But see, brothers and sisters, stories like this remind us that despite how long you might be suffering, if your faith is in Christ, that your healing is coming. It might not be till glory, but it's coming. It's going, Jesus showed up once that fateful day in a synagogue and he's going to show up again. Did you know that? Do you believe that? That one day Jesus will show up a second time And this will not be an isolated healing, but he will heal everyone. We can have hope now that Jesus can heal us immediately spiritually, but also that he will heal us someday physically. And this is the tension we experience in this age, in the age of your kingdom come. Martin Luther, the German pastor, often talked about spiritual growth as a three-part process. He says the first part of the process is prayer. That's where we align ourselves with God's truth and God's word. The second part is meditation. And that's where, having communed with God and submitted to God, we begin to view all of our life through the lens of God and God first. And the third part was on fetch tongue. You guys all know that, right? It was what he described as temptation through affliction. Germans have such a way with language. Isn't it beautiful? We all knew on Fott's tongue was something bad. (laughs) Affliction through temptation. Temptation through affliction. And Luther included this as a good part of the process. Because like Paul, he saw this as a grace. Because it was through the devil's temptation and affliction causing us to doubt Jesus' goodness and his power, that for the Lord's saints, it had an opposite effect. That it was the fire that hardened the protective enamel of our faith, that that which we prayed for and that which we meditated on was actually true in experience. When Satan attacks the people of God, God's people are driven to God. And in so doing, we are afforded the wonderful opportunity to use what Satan intended for evil as a means for what God accomplished for good. Despite everything she went through, she still sought out the teaching of God's word because she knew she needed it. She knew that here and here alone was power. She wasn't in the synagogue under duress. 
She wasn't carried there by somebody else. She wasn't interrupting Jesus as he taught, probably because after 18 years of suffering, she had conceded that God had not willed for her to be healed yet. But one day, one day, a man came to synagogue and he opened up the Bible and he began to teach. And you can imagine that maybe there was this sinking feeling in her gut that this was just like every other weekly day in the synagogue. But then he saw her. He called to her. He spoke to her. He touched her and she healed her. A healing she didn't ask for became a sign that everything she was hoping for in the kingdom of God was finally coming true. That the kingdom was blooming in the midst at the hand of the king. That power had come. And Jesus' mercy immediately healed her. And immediately she glorified God. She understood with clarity in that moment that the hope, that hope in the promise of God is never hope misplaced. No matter how long it seems for that to come, it is never misplaced. Whether it takes 18 months, 18 years, or only in eternity itself, the power of the gospel to make everything new is real in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. It is no fable or fairy tale. It is no mere resurrection happens in your heart and healing is a spiritual thing. It is a spiritual thing, but it will be physical, brothers and sisters. As God wills in this life, but as God has willed universally in the life to come. Here was power that healed and a woman glorified God. But this wasn't the only response to Jesus' power, was it? Here we see Mr. Pout Poutfish himself, in the hardening of a heart. Not only did Jesus' mercy stare down and defeat the forces of the devil, but here he faces the stubborn force of our flesh, the religious opposition to the mercy of Jesus. The ruler of the synagogue, this is, it's just, it's fun to read your Bible and pay attention to what it's saying. The ruler of the synagogue sees this woman healed. And in verse 14, Luke tells us he became indignant because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if they had Yelp back then, what the Yelp reviews to Jesus would have been like? Like 10 out of 10, don't recommend, heal the woman who was suffering for 18 years on a Saturday. Can you believe it? Why was this such a big deal? Well, Jesus tells us a little bit more why this was a big deal in reading his response. We can assume what this man was wrestling with in verses 14 through 17. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, not on the Sabbath day. The Lord answered him, you hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? Ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame and all the people rejoiced at all the glorious things that were done by him. This man was upset precisely because Jesus healed on the Sabbath. And he's so upset, this is wild. Again, read the Bible with your eyes wide open. That he rebukes the people and he says to them, 
come on another day and be healed. It's almost like he just saw something as ordinary as Jesus give this woman a cup of coffee, (laughs) right? He's like, come back tomorrow. I'll have a fresh pot on. This was a woman who came for 18 years and nothing like this happened. And he's like, if you want healing, we had the ability all along to do it. And if you really want it, come back tomorrow and we'll start the whole healing thing over again. He's completely blind to the kingdom presence in his midst. The vineyard was barren because they misunderstood two things. First, they misunderstood the Sabbath itself. The Sabbath, it was Saturday in the Jewish calendar was created in Genesis 1 on the seventh day when God himself rested from creation. It became a law binding to the Israelites, not in Genesis chapter 1, but actually in Exodus chapter 20. It was verbally given as a law to the Israelites. But before it became part of God's written law, it was talked about most frequently in the events of the Passover, where God brought his people out of Egypt. The the Passover night was called a solemn Sabbath to the Lord. And these two events, creation and redemption, help us understand what is meant by the Sabbath and by its laws. The Sabbath was meant to bring rest on one hand and reliance on another. It was a day where God's people were told to sit back and to relax. To know that your life Your provision isn't reliant upon your labor or your fields or your to-do list, but on God himself. But secondly, the Sabbath was tied to God's mercy. On the Sabbath of the Passover, God worked so that his people could be spared. God's people rested by faith in the blood of a sacrificed lamb smeared over a doorway, and they had to trust that though they could do no work, that the work of God and God alone was sufficient to accomplish the work of redemption. And if you notice now, when we turn to Exodus chapter 20, where we see the Sabbath law, it holds together those ideas of rest and of mercy. Chapter 20, verses 8 through, uh, we'll read 8 through 10, the book of Exodus. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Isn't that what the ruler of the synagogue just said? But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. So the Sabbath was a day of rest. They were not to work, but it was also a day to give mercy. And what did that mercy look like? He said, don't make anyone else work. This isn't a day where the Israelites get to now sit back and they get to relax and they have their neighbors or the foreigners in their midst do all the dirty work for them. Instead, what were they to do? They were to invite those who were on the outside to experience the beautiful joy of resting in a reliance on the God who is creator and savior. The God who does everything. And that's all the law we see about this. There's a couple other ones that we'll read in the Old Testament about picking up sticks and things like that, but this is really the sum of it. This is the heart of it. But what happened over the centuries is the Pharisees added thousands of laws to to God's law, so much so that in order to protect rest on the Sabbath, they made all these things you could and couldn't do. And what came at the cost of it? Mercy. The Sabbath became burdensome and oppressive to people. And Jesus draws us out, though, when he says, you have mercy on your donkey. When you untie your donkey on the Sabbath and bring it to water, 
Here, I have untied a woman bound by Satan, and you're upset. They misunderstood the mercy of God. But they understood the mercy of God because, secondly, they misunderstood Jesus. If you don't have a right understanding of who Jesus is, you will always misunderstand what mercy looks like. You'll say, no, 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 no. Salvation looks like this. Mercy looks like this. But we understand who Jesus is. Jesus frames the mercy that we need. You see, not only was Jesus giving mercy as the Sabbath would have allowed, but he was the fulfillment of the Sabbath itself. Just like on the Passover Sabbath, Jesus was going to work so that his people could rest. From a story of scripture, the Sabbath was the perfect day. The synagogue was the perfect place. In the midst of Jesus' teaching was the perfect time for him to do this healing. This is why God gives laws in order to save his people and bring them into rest. Jesus was working so that the works of the law, to show the works of the law were coming to an end and that the works of grace were coming from his call, from his words, and from his touch. The vine dresser was working. It is no work of the flesh to come to faith in Jesus. Faith is not a human work. Faith is a work of God in the hearts of those who submit themselves to the man and the message of mercy. Now I have a confession to make. I really struggled in writing this sermon this week. I struggled with it because I feel like this text doesn't need a preacher to give you the main point. It's pretty self-evident, right? If I took this text and I walked downtown and I read it on a street corner or I walked into a philosophy lecture at the university, everyone to a T would say, all right, we get it. Don't be like the ruler. But then more than that, we'd be like, well, we're not the ruler. I am not so arrogant that I would see Jesus do something gracious like that and become the pout-pout fish. This is so, like, who needs this text? I, have, I guarantee you, if, if I healed somebody here, none of you would stand up and say, there are six days in which one ought to be healed. It just wouldn't happen. We don't need this text. We aren't this guy. We would never misunderstand Jesus. We would always see Jesus as exactly who he is. We would never be confused at the implications of the gospel at this time in space, in history. We would always understand with total clarity what it means to live in the tension between Jesus' first coming and second coming. We would never say, it's not supposed to look like this. We would never become frustrated when others are experiencing grace by seemingly turning in mere repentance. Meanwhile, we have been laboring at faith and obedience under our own power and merely feel oppressed. We don't need this passage. We don't need Jesus to straighten us out. We would never encounter someone who needs gospel grace and say, there are six days in which you can be healed, but today football's on. Come back tomorrow. We would never seek to confine the work of Jesus to our own schedules or our own expectations. You see, we need this text. Because if we aren't careful, we too misunderstand the nature of Jesus and his kingdom. And did you notice the response of the crowds at the end? At the end, the associates of the ruler of the synagogues, the opponents are put to shame. But what did the crowds do in verse 17? They rejoiced in all the glorious things that were done by him. That sounds really good. 
But did you notice what the woman rejoiced at? In verse 13, she glorified God. Did you notice the difference? Some people were excited at the things that Jesus did. The other one was ecstatic at the person who Jesus was. When it comes to following Jesus, we often follow a savior who in our culture is at worst actively opposed and sometimes at best merely ignored. If our hope is in the spectacular works of God, the observable, spectacular, wonderful change in this time, but not in the man of God, then our emotions will always be complicated and we will always wrestle when those glorious things seem far away, either in the future or in the past. We will look at the lack of spectacular things going on and we will begin to say, what about me? Is this real? Can Jesus do anything about this? Am I forgotten? But this Jesus, though misunderstood and opposed, is the power of God that crushes the work of the devil and humbles the self-righteous. The gospel, though opposed, is also overcoming. And this is our final point this morning. Kingdom power. Kingdom power. Read with me Jesus' final parables in Luke 13, 18 through 21. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and became a tree, and the birds of the air made nest in its branches. And he again said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. You see, just like the miracle itself, the danger of these parables are in their simplicity. They're both abundantly clear. They're about something seemingly small that grows and makes something bigger. It's about something having innate power to it. And that power, though slowly and over time, often grows, right? Watching a tree grow is not, there's no Netflix special on it. Because we observe its growth in years, not in moments. The power of leaven seems weak. When you first make the bread, you might not notice it. But when you leave... You'll come back and you'll notice that slowly, slowly, without us even seeing growth, it's it's just growing. It's easy to understand this. And maybe I'm a dummy, but it's really hard to believe this. You see, let's not forget that the ruler of the synagogue was totally content with Jesus' teaching until it confronted what he didn't believe. Did you notice that? He was totally fine with Jesus preaching the Old Testament until Jesus started preaching something that this man didn't believe. Jesus' point here is that it's so easy to miss the kingdom, but you can't miss it. The power is not in acceptance of the gospel by the world. The power of the gospel is not in the immediate relief of the spine or the solving your financial crisis or relational status. The power is in the kingdom itself, in Jesus, who is the king. That's what this whole passage goes to show. It's moving from shadow to substance the whole way through. The ruler couldn't get past the Sabbath to the greater mercy of rest. The crowds rejoiced in the glorious things, but the woman rejoiced in a glorious God. The seed gives way to a tree. The leaven rises the whole hump, or whole lump. Everybody, everybody wants the end of the kingdom. 
Everybody wants the big tree and the massive loaf. But do you see where it starts? Do you see where you have to land the plane? It starts here in the ministry of Jesus Christ, who is himself opposed. And as Jesus' followers, you might find yourself opposed. But even when he is opposed and we are opposed, the power and progress is inevitable. Here is power. Here is hope. And nowhere else. You see, the woman was healed by Jesus. But did you see her experience in this text? What was the response of everyone else kind of around her? They were mad at her. The ruler didn't rebuke Jesus, probably a good pointer. He picked up good social cue. But instead, what did he do? He rebuked the crowds around her. He rebuked the crowds on account of her as if it was her in her weakness that messed up everything. Brothers and sisters, when Jesus heals your heart through faith, you'll realize that not all religious hypocrites wear robes. You see, for many reasons, we can, we can pout. There's hardship in this world. And the, the world will throw it at you. It will say, when you break the party lines of drinking and sleeping around, those legalists of your own life will rise up and they'll say, why'd you ruin this? Go back to the way you were. When you walk away from the phantom king of sexual pleasure and financial opulence, you'll be told to step back in line. But what the world wants to bind by its power, Jesus has come to free by his, even when that freedom seems insignificant and out of place. Life is hard in a sinful world, and that points us to our need of a savior from sin. But as Christians, we endure suffering differently. We do not spread the dreary wearies, but instead we spread the power of the kingdom. We are to pick up what Paul talks about. We are the fragrance of Christ to those who are perishing. But it's often the rose that is crushed in the crucible that emits the most beautiful smell. But even so, we are not at want for power. For Jesus' kingdom is just like that. Powerful, but opposed. Afflicted, but overcoming. Right after Paul talks about the thorn in his side, he says this in 2 Corinthians twelve nine. This is Jesus speaking to Paul. Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you for my power the power of Jesus is made perfect in weakness. I'll give you a little theological pointer here. Jesus had no weakness. <laughs> Jesus' power is made perfect in your weakness. Paul picks up and he says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that the power of Christ may rest upon me. This is the beautiful tension of the kingdom. <laughs> that in Jesus is the power, even when our experiences don't seem very empowered. J.C. Ryle has a wonderful quote about this. He's an old British pastor. It's a, it's a little bit long, but I want to take time and read it for us today because we often wrestle with frustration when what God is doing in our time doesn't look like the power we want it to look like. And we begin to question, is God really able? Am I really saved? Is the world really wrong? Am I really right? It won't make sense to our eyes, but it makes sense when we understand the mercy and person of Jesus. This is what he says. The beginning of the gospel were exceedingly small. It was like the grain of a seed cast into the garden. 
It was a religion which seemed at first so feeble and helpless and powerless that it could not live. It first, its first founder was one who was poor in this world and ended his life by dying the death of a malefactor on the cross. Its first adherents were a little company whose number probably did not exceed a thousand when the Lord Jesus left this world. Its first preachers were a few fishermen and publicans who were, most of them, unlearned and ignorant men. Its first starting point was a despised corner of the earth called Judea, a petty tributary province of the vast empire of Rome. Its first doctrine was eminently calculated to call forth the enmity of the natural heart. Christ crucified was to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. Its first movements brought down on its friends persecution from all quarters. Pharisees, Sadducees, Jews, Gentiles, ignorant idolaters, and self-conceited philosophers all agreed in hating and opposing Christianity. It was a sect everywhere spoken against. These are no empty assertions. These are simply historical facts which no one can deny. If ever there was a religion which was a little grain of seed at the beginning, that religion was the gospel. The gospel might not in this moment solve all of your problems, but one day it will. In this moment, it has solved your biggest problem by taking away your sin and bringing you back to God through the work of the cross. But one day this kingdom will come in full. The gospel might seem slow. It might seem ineffective, but one day the whole lump will be leavened. It might seem like you're the only one wrestling through the meekness and weakness of life. But remember, it is only this Jesus who enters into this world who sees you, who calls you, who touches you, and who heals you. And remember that one day the birds of the air will join in the branches of the tree of grace. When Jesus speaks about this, most scholars think it's an allusion to Ezekiel 17, 23 through 24, where the Old Testament prophet says this, On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, bird of every sort will nest And all the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. Brothers and sisters, to come to Jesus in his mercy is to bind yourself to the vine that becomes a cedar. A tree filled not just with the promised of the Jews of Abraham, but the birds of the world from every tongue, tribe, and nation. It might look meek and misunderstood now, but for those who understand Jesus and his kingdom, we do not lose hope for the power is in the seed. Instead, like this woman healed by the savior, we make it our business in the face of scoffers to glorify the God who saved us, to live in the beautiful tension of a seed that is becoming imperceptible to human eyes, greater, different, bigger, stronger, and more Christ-like. And in fulfillment of the Sabbath law, what are we to do but to invite others to come in, to say, lay down your works and come and rest here in the gospel. There will be no pouting for those who believe, though hardship, opposition, and lament abound, for the power is in the kingdom and it will not fail. So we go in light of this kingdom power and we submit all of our emotions, not to our experiences, but to the king who enters into it. John Chrysostom, an early church pastor, had a wonderful quote that spurs us onward in our mission in this upside down kingdom. He said this, now if 12 men 
leavened the whole world. Imagine how great our disbelief if we being so many are not to add the more who remain. We who ought to be enough for 10,000 worlds and to become leaven to them. May the Holy Spirit help us to not miss this point, to not wallow in our circumstances, but instead to realize that we are missionaries and ambassadors of a kingdom whose king has come, of a healing that has happened in part, but will one day happen in full. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we ask for your mercy as we seek to apply this text to our lives. Only you can tell us the ways in which we, in our own hearts, are frustrated and misunderstanding your work at this time, misunderstanding your person. But we know that, as Paul says, right now we see everything through a glass but dimly. And so we should not be surprised when our perception of you, even for those who are Christian, needs to be brought back in line with scripture. Lord, help us by causing us to boast in our weakness. Make us the faithful woman who even for what seemed like 18 fruitless years submitted herself to the power and promise of the gospel and in the end received healing at the hands of Jesus. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.